I have to say it was a beautiful uh, sunrise this morning, and I was, um, it was worth getting up at 5 o'clock. <laughs> Actually, I got up a little before that because, yeah, you set the alarm, and then you wake up before the alarm because you want to make sure the alarm goes off. <laughs> that was me this morning. So, um, as we, um, I was thinking when I, as I saw the sun rising, there's a passage in uh, Isaiah, and I don't remember the exact reference because I forgot to look it up before I came, but it uh, says this, the S-U-N of righteousness, the son of righteousness will rise with healing on his wings. And that's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and his coming is that he's that son of righteousness. He is not only the S-U-N of righteousness, he is the S-O-N of righteousness. So you get a beautiful picture of, his, of, the, light of the light of the world coming into the darkness and uh, giving us hope and light. We're going to be looking at uh, the second uh, appearance of Jesus on the day of resurrection, and it's taken from Luke 24. I spoke on Luke 24 just briefly um, this morning because uh, the women were at the tomb early. Um, it was um, probably just, uh, day, it was just dawn had come. And uh, Luke is writing for his reader, Theophilus. And he's, uh, as you read Acts and you read Luke, he's, he's writing... This, uh, these are eyewitnesses that he's actually uh, talked to, and uh, these are people that he wanted uh, to, uh, to know what actually happened on the day of resurrection. Now, he's going he's gonna to speak about other, such, other uh, scenes as well, but he wants us to focus on these three because he gives three scenes of the resurrection on the first day. The first one in the morning with the women, the second one's in the afternoon with uh, two disciples. And then the third one's in the evening. And we have to remember that the disciples, they have the door locked and they're hiding upstairs because <laughs> they're fearful uh, of the Jews at this point because as far as they're concerned, they've lost hope. And, uh, and so we're going to be reading this passage on the road to Emmaus. And I've titled this message On the Road to Recovery because I think it really uh, kind of... It, it kind of gives us a picture of what God is doing in our lives too. I want us to—I don't want us—I want us to look at this this scene on the road to Emmaus. It's the—it's the gospel road and how God uses the gospel road to take us on this road that we're on, and to uh, to recover our thinking uh, where we're at in our life, and to uh, and to bring us from hopelessness to joy in the Christian life. And so we're going to pick up with verse 13. This is the, this is the next scene, if you will. And, uh, and what's interesting is that uh, in the first scene, you'll notice that when the women went to the tomb, Jesus is missing. In this scene, Jesus is there, but they don't recognize him. You know, and then the third scene, we're going to see uh, the disciples. We won't see that this Sunday. But uh, they're actually, Jesus is in the upper room and they recognize him. So it's, it's kind of like a, Luke is kind of telling us how Jesus just gradually, more and more, over the 50 days before, actually the 40 days before he ascends to heaven, reveals himself to uh, over 500 people uh, that were witnesses of the resurrection. So no, notice with me in verse 13, that very day, uh, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb and early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further or farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table at, with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on, to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon, and they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And may the Lord add his blessing upon his word. Let's pray. Father, uh, we need uh, your Holy Spirit to not only illumine our eyes and our hearts, but uh, Father, uh, we trust that uh, the Holy Spirit would also cause that uh, burning within our own hearts as we see unfolded before us uh, this beautiful scene of, of Christ revealing more and more of himself uh, from your holy word. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of eternal life, that life that flows out of the resurrection. And Father, that we are not hopeless, but that we have hope uh, because Jesus Christ truly has risen, risen indeed. And for this, we give you thanks and we ask for your blessing now upon our time together as uh, at continue together as we've uh, enjoyed uh, fellowship and prayer and sing and song. And now, Father, may we have the sweet fellowship with you in, in, the, in the word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. At one point in um, uh, my earlier ministry, actually before I came here, uh, we worked with a lot of people who were going through grief. And uh, I don't know, uh, you have to kind of put yourself in that, in that kind of that thinking here uh, as these two disciples, and it could have been Cleopas and his wife or his son or daughter. We don't know for sure. Uh, we just know that, uh, but these two disciples were on their way. But uh, what we do know is that they were very sad. In fact, uh, they, were, uh, they were discouraged. Uh, they're... Uh, you could imagine um, they were disappointed. They were grief-stricken because Jesus had died. 
they may have been depressed. Uh, they may be disoriented. Um, if anyone has gone through a, a loss of any individual, uh, you know that your, your whole emotions are like a tangled ball. Um, one, of the, one of the things we would do is take a, a ball of yarn uh, in a group, and we would throw that to another person. They said, just catch it, and you throw it to somebody else. And what happens, if I were to do that, I'd take a tangled ball and i threw it back there, and you threw it to somebody else, and they threw it to somebody else. What's going to happen? All that's going to get all tangled up. Now, you can't unwind that, can you? Well, that's what those emotions are things that get tangled up that we don't try to. We, you know, when you're going through grief, there's all these emotions, and they're coming at you at once, and you don't know how to untangle them. It's, it's like it leaves a person very disoriented in a, fa- in a, in a way. And, uh, you know, mourning, grief, uh, disorientation, uh, depression, discouragement, uh, all of those things are a part of the grief process. And, and so you can think of the disciples as they're going along the road. Now think about it. It's a seven-mile journey. Now how long, long does it take you to walk seven miles? Well, it depends on, you know, if you stop and take a break and, you know, what did you just say? You know, uh, but, but let's just say most likely this, this, this journey that Jesus is on as he begins to teach them takes about two hours. So you can figure it's a Bible lesson, a two-hour Bible lesson. Jesus comes along with them and uh, they're talking and Jesus begins to inquire. Uh, here's the stranger He's a, you know, they don't know who he is at this point because their eyes are, are darkened. They don't, they can't, they don't know that it's Jesus at this point. And it's interesting as Jesus begins to ask questions, but, but notice how he begins the process as he begins, he begins basically saying, what, what, what happened? And, and they kind of think, you know, they're responding, their resp- first response is that, you know, has your head been in the sand all these days? I mean, haven't you ever watched, didn't you watch the news just lately? Didn't you read anything about what's going on? Don't you realize how, how terrible what's actually happened here today? And, and so there's this, uh, they're, they're, they're stunned and disappointed, and Jesus is trying to bring them, get them to talk about it. Uh, you would say it's, uh, it's you, you'll kind of like, you'll see Jesus moving from this inquiry, asking questions, and all of a sudden he begins to teach. Then all of a sudden he becomes the guest in their house. And then pretty soon he's what? He's hosting them, breaking bread. It's a beautiful picture. It's, there's this, this, this process, you know, he comes in, here's the stranger, you know, and there's a lot of people, Jesus is still a stranger to them, Right? And then what happens? You know, they, uh, you know as, G, as, as the Word of God begins to work in a person's life, all of a sudden they start asking questions. And Jesus, Jesus actually is asking the questions to get them to think about things, to think about who Jesus really is. And then he begins to teach them what the Scriptures actually say about the real Jesus. You know, because a lot of people have a lot of different views as to who Jesus is. You know, they think, well, who's Jesus? Well, you know, he's a good teacher. I mean, I asked uh, my, um, my Islamic friend, uh, he was a computer programmer uh, at the bank, and I said, well, you know, who is Jesus? Well, he's a great teacher. He's a prophet. He's, he's a good man, but, you know, but then there's Muhammad. But I'd say to him, well, but Muhammad's grave, Muhammad's still in it. Jesus isn't in his grave. Or what about uh, whoever founded Buddha, uh, Buddhism? 
Where's their grave? Well, Buddha, the founder of Buddhism is in his grave. And you could ask the same for Hinduism, or you could ask the same for any religion. Those founders are in the grave. But see, Christ is not in the grave. And so that's the beautiful thing. As they begin this journey, they begin this journey in, their, in, in this, this part of their life. Think about it. Their world has just collapsed. All of their hopes, all of their dreams, everything that they had thought was going to happen has just been submerged under 100 feet of water. And that's where they're at. And Jesus comes into that situation, and he comes into your situations and my situations in our disorientation, our discouragement, our disillusionment about even, I mean, actually what happens in often cases is that as we're living life, we sometimes have the wrong understanding of who Jesus is. And he brings us through the experience so that we begin to realize how significant the person and work of Jesus truly is. And so, so Jesus is, it, it's beautiful to see him just, just like, a, like as if he were teaching children. And he's just bringing them along step by step by step by step. Stranger inquiring, asking questions. And isn't that a good way to, uh, to begin with somebody that's going through a trial? I mean, many of you here may be going through some specific trials in your life. Or maybe there's just a lot of questions you have. Or maybe there's like, who is this Jesus? Uh, or you might be like Thomas Jefferson. You know, you could, uh, you know, the, the end of Thomas Jefferson's Bible reads like this. Oh, I think I have it here somewhere. I actually wrote it down. Thomas Jefferson's Bible, he edited the version of his Bible. He took out all the miracles of Jesus. And this is what it reads at the end. Uh, he uh, basically says, they laid Jesus um, in his tomb, rolled a great stone at the mouth of the tomb, and departed. End of story. Not much hope there, is there? Wow. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing to look forward to. Not, nothing, nothing to hope in. And so here Jesus, of course, is he's bringing out their understanding of who they thought Jesus was. You know, because a lot of times I think people, you know, think that Jesus just, I just want to feel good Jesus. I wanted Jesus just to make my life just without problems. But that's not the Jesus of the scriptures, is it? The Jesus of the scripture is, is really, uh, yes, he's compassionate, he's loving, but there's more to who Jesus is than just merely making me feel good because I'm not at the center of the story, we find out. Jesus is at the center of the story of redemption. And our story's in there, but it's not the main story. And, and, but he's there because, and we're in the story. If we're, if we're believers, we're in the story with him. But he's the main character of that story, and that's the, that's the part. But, but I think that one of the things that uh, uh, I've learned through counseling, and I say I've learned, but maybe the, the Lord's really taught me through this, is that, um, you know, when, you, when you've gone through, um, you know, you've, you read the scriptures, sometimes you think you know what a person's going through. The best thing to do is ask questions. And one of the best questions you can ask them is, where is Jesus in your story? I mean, think about it. Isn't that, a, isn't that a good question? Where is Jesus? Where, where do you see Jesus in your life right now? And I would ask each one of you this morning, where do you see Jesus at in your life, in your life story? 
Is he, is he there alongside you or is he kind of distant? He's kind of, you know, Jesus is there, but, you know, uh, he's really not the main part of my story. But he should be. He wants to be. He can be. It's a part of this story here because they're thinking that Jesus is the end of the story. He's dead as far as they're concerned. And yet he's standing right there. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think about it. When we think God is so far distant, he's actually, in many cases, standing right next to us in that very moment. Isn't that amazing? That's just, I mean, I, I mean this, this story has this got so many things in it, and I can't, I can't really, but I think one of the principles that Jesus is emphasizing here is the sufficiency, the importance and the sufficiency of the Word of God how important it is for us to know the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of our imagination, not the Jesus of, of what the world says he is. It's not the Jesus of television or of Hollywood. It's the Jesus of the scriptures. And that Jesus is the Jesus that dies for sin. It's the Jesus that takes the burden of sin. You notice like um, there were two famous books, two books that every, every home had in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century. You know what they were? It was the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. The Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's this picture of Christian. And you remember, he's, he's running from the city of destruction, and he's crying out, eternal life, eternal life. But as he's running, he's got this huge burden on his back. It's the burden of sin and guilt and condemnation. And he's carrying that, but he doesn't realize it until he comes to the cross. And what happens? As he comes to the cross and he sees Christ hanging on the cross, dying for his sins, it says that he falls at the cross and the burden rolls away. And it rolls down the hill. And where does it roll into? It rolls right into an empty tomb. And that's, so, so God takes the burden of sin and the resurrection is God's, it's kind of like God's, God's amen to everything Jesus did on the cross as our sin substitute. And he says, amen, the tomb is empty. And Paul says it in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, he talks about the gospel. He says that Jesus Christ has been declared the, work, has been declared the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is God saying to us, yes, yes, yes. And you go like, wow. That's all we need, right? If God says it's yes and God says it's acceptable, who am I to ever question that? And the resurrection is so important. In fact, it's so important that Paul says, if you and I don't experience physical resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. You and I, if you are a believer, you're so tied to the resurrection that he even says, puts us before Christ. He said, basically says, if you haven't risen, Christ hasn't risen. And if Christ hasn't risen, your faith is in vain. And, if your faith, and, if, and, if, and he says, and even if, if Christ hasn't risen, our preaching is nothing but falsehood. And if that's the case, then all the people that have died in Christ, are, they've perished. It, it's just an amazing... Uh, Kind of, it just—it just flows. I mean, everything flows out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so Jesus is teaching the disciples here that even in our deepest grief and our deepest struggle, we always have to go back to the gospel, to the Word of God, and say, "What does Jesus say about my life and what's going on in my life?" Always, in, in other words, the lens of Scripture. These are lenses. 
I have to use the scripture lens to interpret what God is doing in my life. I may not always understand it, but it's God bringing those things into my life for a reason. And, and if we see it in that light, then the gospel brings hope. It brings direction, purpose, and all those things that, that the disciples are going to experience in here. And, uh, and so it's, uh, it's a beautiful picture of the power of the Word of God. Because notice what Jesus begins to do. He moves from inquirer now to teacher. And he begins, he says to them in verse 25, and notice he has to say this, I guess. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart. Now, I'd hate to say he's calling them stupid, but he is kind of like, I mean, if that were me and there's a guy, can you just look at me for once? Can't you recognize me? They can't recognize Jesus at this point. Isn't that amazing? The risen Christ is right there. They can't see him. And he doesn't say, would you just look at me? No, he says, look at the scriptures. Look at the scriptures. Why do we emphasize, why does this church emphasize Bible study, right? Why do we, why do we emphasize the study of Scripture? Why do, why do we preach from the Scriptures? But why not preach from some poet or some literature? What good is that going to be, right? Because thus saith the Lord, is, this is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. And so, so, so Jesus is giving them, he's giving kind of a, you might say, a paradigm for life. The paradigm for your life is this, what saith the scriptures about Jesus? And then the second thing it says this is that all the scripture is about who? It's about Jesus because he takes them to the Old Testament and he begins to show them Jesus in all of the Old Testament. So when you read Genesis, think about it, you're reading about Jesus. The, the gospel in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He would bruise the, the, the Messiah's heel, and that's, that's in Genesis 3.15. And then it, Jesus took him probably to Exodus, to the Red Sea, and, and the deliverance from the Red Sea. Think about the Passover lamb. They slayed the lamb. They marked, they marked the doorpost with blood, and God passed over them. It was all pointing to Jesus. Where he took them to Leviticus, to all the sacrifices in the, in the Levitical priesthood. And you're going, why have all these animals being killed? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He took them to Numbers. And, the, and, and you know, remember how uh, Moses put the serpent on a pole? And he says, look and live. Well, that was Jesus being a curse for you on the cross. You know, cursed is everyone who hangs on the cross. And he uses it in Galatians. And I know Greg's studying Galatians right now. So, so, uh, or Deuteronomy. A prophet like Moses would be raised up. And then he takes them to the psalm, Psalm 22. Oh, God, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that whole Psalm 22 is about the cross. Or, or, psalm, or, or any, many of the other psalms. Psalm 16 is about the resurrection. And, and it's all pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. And... and and so, as you read the Old Testament, never think that, that the best way to interpret it is, is not to just look at it as just merely a story. It's a story about Jesus in which the thread of redemption goes right from the beginning all the way through it. The temple sacrifices, David the king, there would be a son raised up like King David. And, and they, it, all, it all fits together, but it's always pointing. It's always pointing forward, always pointing forward to Jesus 
and to his sacrifice on the cross. And so Jesus is giving them instruction in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you love to have heard that sermon? By the way, if you read the book of Acts, I believe that you get a little bit more of what that sermon must have sounded like because every time Peter preaches, this same Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him both now Lord and Christ. And it says they are cut to the quick. He says, you've crucified him, but Jesus has made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, um, Acts chapter 2, I think it's verse 38 there. And so, so Jesus is giving us, emphasizing not only the centrality of the scriptures and the importance of interpreting the scriptures and seeing Christ there, but seeing that Christ is central to all of scripture. He is the focal point of Scripture. And Jesus himself is saying, and then notice he says, And beginning with Moses, all the prophets, verse 27, he interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. And as they drew near the village, they were going to go on. Um, you know, this is a beautiful picture. You know, as, as you're hearing the Word of God, Jesus is always open to an invitation to come in. What do they do? He started out as a stranger. He moves to inquiring and asking questions. He begins teaching them. Their hearts are burning, and they're saying, there's something about this guy. I want to know more. And they say, can you just stay with us a little while? You know, there's a lot of people. They say, well, I, just want, I need to know more about Jesus before I can, I can really follow him. Well, just ask him to come in. Why else does the scripture say, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. And what else? My burden. Is it heavy? It's light. It's light. And, and, and so you, you, you get this beautiful picture of, of the Jesus of scripture, the Jesus who's revealed himself as our Savior, our Lord, the one who forgives sins. And the one who can and does and will carry your burdens and my burdens. Because, you know, the longer I live, I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, 70 yet. I'm getting close there. But, you know, yeah, it's a few days off or a few. Hopefully it's a couple, what's a couple more years off. If the Lord, Lord, if the Lord tarries to uh, allow me to have two more years. But the point is, is that. You know, the, more, the longer I live, I realize that people carry burdens that they don't have to carry. You can give those burdens to Jesus. That's what the scripture's about. You know, these brothers, this brother and maybe his wife, they're, 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 they're stricken with grief. They're just mourning the loss that they, that someone who really gave them hope, they've lost. And in that loneliness and that hopelessness, Jesus comes and he shines light. And he's taking that burden away, that burden of grief away from them. And it says, as he does that, they invite him to stay. And maybe sometimes it's just as simple as this. You know, I don't understand it all. And I can think of a lot of reasons. You know, if I look at people and wonder, okay, but that person failed me. And this person failed me. And that person failed me. Guess what? The longer I live in the world, to realize that, you know, everybody's going to fail because nobody can be perfect except Jesus. And I'm always going to have somebody failing me. But I can't trust in them. I have to trust in the one who, who said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever fail you or forsake you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They invite him in. And I think the thing that, they, that Jesus emphasizes, he says it's necessary that Jesus, not only did he live the scriptures, not only did he obey the scriptures, but 
the important part of the scriptures is that he died. The centrality of the cross for all your life. I need the cross. I need forgiveness. Pardon was bought at the price of Christ's blood in his life. What a, what a beautiful picture that is for us. And Jesus emphasizes that. Um, even Paul in his preaching, he says, I delivered unto you what I received, the cross. Uh, he says that Jesus died, that he rose the third day, that everyone who believes on the name of Jesus will be and can be, can be saved. That if you believe with your mouth, you know, he says that if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and that he rose from the dead, confess with your mouth, he says you can be saved. And, you know, that, that's a message that people, they say, well, that's too easy. That's too simple. Even a child can understand. Yes, that's the point. <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus didn't say I'm trying to make salvation complicated. You have to go through these ten steps. He's just saying, you know, just come as a little child. Trust that what I've done is sufficient. And you know what happens is that the, the disciples, when did they experience God's presence or when did they realize Jesus is present? When he breaks the bread. Because you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, I, I believe. And Jesus then says, okay, and he breaks the bread of life. And all of a sudden he opens their eyes. They see who Jesus is and he, and he vanishes, of course, just for that moment. But what's hilarious about this text is what do they do? You've walked seven miles, you're at home, you're tired, you haven't, you're getting ready to eat. Jesus appears, and what happens? They can't wait to get back to seven miles. They head back to the disciples to tell them, we just saw Jesus. Now think about it, you just walked seven miles, you're, you're, you've, it's been two hours, you've walked that way. I bet you it didn't take them two hours to get back to you. <laughs> I'm thinking that they're probably a little jump in that step. Oh, I can't wait to tell, you know, I've got great news. I, I got engaged. I mean, I, no, no, I'm, I mean, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> I mean, there's some, there's some hop in their step. Now, now what's happened? They were totally grief stricken. They were totally overwhelmed. And what's happened now? They are filled with the joy of the Lord and they're coming back and they're saying, guess what? We saw Jesus. We, he's alive. He, I mean, not only is he alive, but the scripture said that he was going to rise the third day. And we've seen it with our eyes. That's why the tomb is empty. See, the scriptures interpret the tomb. Without the scriptures, you could say, well, the tomb's empty. Well, uh, maybe somebody stole his body. That's what they meant. And in fact, that's what the Jews said, right? They paid the, the soldiers to say they stole his body. And... Um, and so they're, they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, it's amazing. You can be, go to church, you can be religious and still be lost. Isn't that amazing? John Wesley preached for probably 10 years. He was the founder of uh, Wesleyan, the Wesleyan, the Methodist Wesleyan. But he came to America and he came to America for this reason. It says here, his chief motive to go to Georgia, uh, he went there to, to, uh, to help little children, was hoping, saving my own soul. Uh, he wanted to go to an orphanage there, and he wanted to preach. He hoped to learn what it meant to be a Christian. Well, he, he left disappointed. He was just said, you know, he, he, he and so, in fact, he went, when he went back to England, it says the ship almost... Uh, it, it almost sunk, and he was terrified. Uh, but he went to a Bible study someone had, had, had mentioned to him to come. 
He didn't want to go, but he went anyway. And it says, as he heard them reading the book of Galatians, as they were hearing about, were justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, through the cross alone, that it says, my heart was strangely warmed. Now, isn't that what happened here? What's happened? These believers, their hearts been, he said, our hearts burned within us. All of a sudden, you know, I mean, I could, I could give you all the reasons you should believe in Jesus, but guess what? The Holy Spirit has to come, take the word of God, and cause it to burn in your heart. You know, and uh, you didn't have, you, you, can't, you, you wouldn't have to do anything more for these, these believers. When they went, they, they ran back. And I, and I think the disciples, can you imagine, would you guys let us in? You got the doors locked, you, you bunch of cowards, you know, and, uh, they, you know, and they come in. And what happens as they're sharing that Jesus, it says, he comes in and they see Jesus. Not only do they recognize him, but all of a sudden they're just, they're just, overwhelmed with joy. And what does Jesus say to them? And what does he say to us when we see him? He says, peace. He doesn't say, you bunch of cowards. You, you, you disappointed me. You know, I'm going to rake you over the coals. And, you know, and, and after you've done a, a, a lot of servile service, maybe I'll accept you back into my, my good graces. No, he doesn't do that. He's, he says, peace be to you. The word peace, shalom, means this. That, he, that means to be healthy in body, soul, and spirit. And that's, when, when you hear the word peace, that means I want, you to be, I want you to be healthy in every aspect of your life. And that's, that's Jesus saying to us. And he says that more than once, doesn't he? In fact, he says later on in this passage, he says he opened their minds so that they would understand everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that it was all fulfilled in him. What a, what, a, what, a, what a powerful message that message is. I'm going to close with this illustration. I, I, um, many years ago, it's probably back, well, it's fifth, uh, actually it's 1400s, but uh, in uh, Spain, the official motto of Spain was there was nothing beyond. As they looked out west, they said that, you know, there's nothing beyond that. The only thing that's there is a deep hole and it's dark. And if you go too far west in the Atlantic Ocean, you'd fall off the side because they thought the world was, was square. <laughs> I mean, they were a little square thinking that. But anyway, they didn't know any better. But Christopher Columbus one day decided, you know, he, he was convinced that the world was round. So he, he sailed off and he found out that there was something more beyond the, dark, the darkness of the west that, that no one was, was afraid to go to. But, you know, many centuries even before that, there was some one greater than, than he. And that person, he entered that darkness on the cross. And he was crucified. And, he, and he, you might say, he went down into the grave. And as he suffered for our sin, it says that he came back. And so what the empty tomb says, when he came back and he rose from the dead, is basically saying to us, yes, there's something way rich and beautiful beyond. And he did that for us to say, yes, even death is not the end. You know, as we look at the graves of those brothers and sisters that we have buried, and we sometimes we grieve and we think, you know, I just wish I could just talk. I mean, there's times where I say, I wish I could just call my dad because, boy, there's questions I have about ministry that I still don't know. (laughs) And I said, and he would know. 
and uh, you know, and you and you and you just long to be able to do that. Guess what? Someday, not only am I going to see my Savior, I'm going to be able to talk to Him again. Why? Because there's something beyond the grave. And what's beyond the grave, Jesus says, is in my Father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again. And you're going to, I'm going to take you home. And you're going to be with me forever. And so that dark hole that we think that, you know, I mean, yes, it's, it's, it brings sorrow and sadness and, and, and tears and, and agony to our lives. And yet Jesus is saying, I went to the cross and I entered death, and I was, victory, I was victorious over it, and I'm coming again to get you. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have that hope. But if you're not, then be like the disciples and what? Invite him in as your guest. And we do that through faith, simple faith. It's not a... You know, it's not a, an arm twisting. It's not a, you know, well, you know, if you just, you know, if you just pretend. No, it's just accepting what God has said. And, he inquire, and as he does, guess what? He, began, he sets a table for you. And all of a sudden, the gospel becomes a feast. And all the riches of Christ become yours. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, more and more, the more you read the scriptures, the more promises. Every promise of the scriptures becomes it comes a dessert for you. I mean, you know, some of you, some of you ladies are great cooks. I mean, I baking, eating some of the baked goods and stuff, and you're thinking like, boy, that's sweet. Well, guess what? The sweetness of Christ, of the gospel, is even sweeter. And Jesus says, "I'm prepared. I've prepared a table for you. Come and eat. Come and dine with me. Come and fellowship." Isn't it amazing? God wants us to come up close. And He's opened heaven, and He said, "Boldly come to the, the throne of grace." He's just opened the door, and he's saying, I want you to come. You know, God's not standing. You know, some people, I have an idea of God that God's like, you know, I like you, but I don't want to get too close. (laughs) And God's there with open arms saying, come unto me. Come and enjoy. I mean, think about it. I can can lay my burdens down, and I can embrace and be embraced by God who loves me so much that he would give his best gift his only son as a sacrifice for my soul so that I might enjoy eternal life let's pray father thank you for your word and Lord thank you for this passage because it um, it tells me that Jesus not only loves us but he's patient and that he doesn't uh, come with a club that he comes with an invitation And, Father, may each of us come this morning, Father, not only rejoicing in the resurrection, but rejoicing that we can sit at the table and that we can feast together as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in Christ alone.